I apologize that our sound quality is was not ideal in some cases. Uh, we were very happy and pleased to have our two guests on the program, and uh, unfortunately, we could not get the best connection with one of them. Uh, but the comments were definitely worth keeping, and so we are presenting it as is. Welcome to the Midgley's Podcast, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Midgley's and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. The topic today is Kyrgyzstan and violence against women and girls. Now, we've spoken about gender discrimination and violence against women in Kyrgyzstan before on the Midgley's, and it is a problem throughout Central Asia. But the much freer media situation in Kyrgyzstan allows us to obtain a clearer picture of the magnitude of the problem there than in other Central Asian countries. And what we see lately in Kyrgyzstan is a rapid increase in violence against women and girls. The United Nations released a statement on July 7th calling on Kyrgyz authorities to intensify efforts to curb violence against women and girls. How bad is the problem? Why is it becoming worse? And what can be done to prevent violence against women and, Kyr- and girls in Kyrgyzstan? To discuss all this, I am joined by Melissa Preti, chair of the UN Working Group on Discrimination Against Women and Girls, which is a special procedure of the Human Rights Council. Special procedures is a term used to describe the largest body of independent experts in the UN human rights system, and it is the general name of the Council's independent fact-finding and monitoring mechanisms that work to advance human rights around the world by engaging directly with governments. Svetlana Zardanova, a human rights and corruption researcher at Freedom for Eurasia and gender associate at the Central Asia Institute for Strategic Studies. Svetlana has previously worked for the OSE Academy in Bishkek, and her work focuses on gender-based violence, gender-related policies, and their implementation. Thank you both for joining me today. Uh, And Melissa, we'll start with you. Um, You were just in Kyrgyzstan. Can you describe the situation um, with the violence against women and girls and, and what the authorities are or are not doing about it? Sure. I was in Kyrgyzstan in April as part of a country mission, Um, and it was a 12-day visit during which we met with uh, actually more than 300 individuals comprising of government officials, members of civil society, women, adolescent girls, as well as those working with the UN. And um, what we were looking at was um, how discrimination against women and girls occurs in Kyrgyzstan, and it's well known that violence against women is one expression of discrimination against women and girls. And so what we did is we looked at discrimination in a number of different spheres. So the political, economic, social, cultural, uh, in private life, as well as in public life. And based on our preliminary findings, And at this stage, I do want to say that these are just preliminary findings. We will publish a final report, which will be presented to the government next June, in June 2023. Uh, But based on our preliminary findings, what we we found is that um, Kyrgyzstan really stands at a crossroads with an immense opportunity to harness the potential of women. And one of the greatest barriers to that really is pervasive violence and the lack of accountability for violence. Um, What we found was that the Kyrgyz Republic has made major strides towards gender equality since its independence, um, particularly through the introduction of laws and policies and the establishment of key institutions. Uh, We did find that the Republic takes pride in being a leader in its commitment to democracy and women's rights in the Central Asia region. 
In fact, it ranks 82nd out of 162 countries on the Gender Inequality Index, so it's kind of somewhere in the middle. But it's very clear that significant gender gaps in economic participation remain, and along with persistent and deep-rooted patriarchal attitudes, stereotypes, and practices around gender roles and high levels of gender-based violence are impeding progress. Uh, now, like in the case of the rest of the world, COVID-19 has created a public health challenge for Kyrgyzstan, and the impact of that has been felt within the last couple of years. But what that has done is uh, exacerbate structural gender inequalities, which in turn has contributed to an increase in violence against women and girls. Another factor I'd just like to note is, um, and this is based on what we heard and what we observed during our visit, is that rising religious extremism is having a damaging impact on the country's efforts to advance gender equality and to tackle gender-based violence, because this rising religious extremism is reinforcing discriminatory norms and practices that hold women and girls back from participating fully in economic, social, and public life. Another concern that we saw, you know, that we have related to that is the fact that um, the, the space for civil society and for women's rights organizations to raise these issues and to demand accountability is also shrinking. And that itself also poses a direct threat to many women human rights defenders and others who are trying to speak out against such violence. Now, despite these challenges, uh, we do see, think that there is incredible opportunity for change and focusing on the proper implementation and resourcing of laws and policies can make a significant difference in the lives of women and girls by lifting the participation of women in economic and public life, enhancing their health status. Um, it's clear that the Kyrgyz Republic can actually make progress towards addressing gender-based violence and preventing gender-based violence. We believe that Kyrgyzstan now has a unique opportunity to simultaneously drive progress on gender equality and women's human rights and to strengthen its economy. And the full and equal participation of women in all aspects of life must be a priority. A priority. This will require strengthening its institutions, laws and governance to accelerate the achievement of gender equality and ensuring the realization of women's and girls' human rights, because at the end of the day, their rights in all of these spheres are interrelated. And progress cannot be made in one area while it lags behind in another. So a holistic approach is, is going to be needed. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Um, you know, and, and the research is, is very valuable. Back to, to more of this in a second. Svetlana. You know, there's a lot of numbers and, and figures they've been throwing out to try to, to show that violence is increasing. But, but can you uh, kind of give us an idea of, of how, you know, is people said, for instance, it's COVID and it started to increase then. And, and now it's, uh, you know, poverty, the extent, uh, poverty that's associated with uh, the le uh, reduction in migrant labor is going to Russia or the inflation or something, inflation, cost of living is going up, cost of food is going up. What have you observed? Um, that, lead, that would um, substantiate these claims that the violence against women and girls is increasing in recent months and years? Yeah, well, I believe uh, it is the matter of data interpretation, uh, basically, like gender-based violence is a pandemic that has raged for long in Kyrgyzstan, Central Asia, and generally across the world. 
For instance, Women, Peace and Security Index puts uh, Kyrgyzstan as a most dangerous country for women in Central Asia, rating it 97 of 170 countries. But as you mentioned, Bruce and uh, Melissa, is probably, and many experts believe, is due to better data availability and openness of the country. Uh, if we compare uh, Kyrgyzstan to its neighbors like Turkmenistan, for instance. However, of course, this knowledge doesn't make it up uh, for many survivors of violence in Kyrgyzstan. And again, if we look at the um, time of COVID-19 pandemic, even the uh, 65% rise of registered cases by law enforcement during the first three months of 2020, it can either be taken as a uh, as a spike of violence against women, but it also can be interpreted as to uh, more women reporting the violence as they were uh, kind of closed with their abusive relatives and husbands, uh, like spouses and homes, and they had no opportunity to leave from the violence uh, like they did before, uh, for instance, to their relatives or to their friends. So they only had the option uh, to file a complaint or to call the police or crisis center. So this, even this um, kind of arise in registered cases uh, can cannot actually uh, tell us that there was a rise in violence because violence is a long, long-term problem for many actually patriarchic societies, uh, just just like uh, Kyrgyzstan is. And we know that only a small p- uh, portion of cases uh, gets reported. So we don't actually know the true numbers. And uh, But we certainly know that these numbers must be way higher than uh, those that get reported. And uh, different regions uh, of the country, of course, have different rates of certain types of violence. For instance, in rural areas where 60% of the country's population lives, surveys suggest uh, that one in two marriage, one in three marriages uh, begins with kidnapping. And the process often involves rape. And if if uh, the marriage starts with violence, there is high probability it will continue with it. So, as I said, I think it's also a matter of that interpretation. Uh, but what COVID pandemic did to Kyrgyzstan and many other places, it, it revealed country's healthcare system issues, it, but it also attracted great attention to violence against women. And it may not exactly got worse, but it definitely is more visible now. And it is tolerated less and less by some parts of, of the country, by some uh, parts of the population. And we see a very active population uh, uh, participation from uh, society, a very active response to cases of violence, like the very recent one of a horrendous case of, of a rape of a very young girl for over six months. And the perpetrators are police officers. So I think uh, it is true that Kyrgyzstan uh, has quite a strong legislation, gender-related legislation, but strong laws are just part of the picture, part of the solution, and uh, the other part of uh, of the picture is uh, implementation, enforcement, and, well, the actual picture. If, if we see that police officers are involved in violence, whenever survivor, a victim of violence, wants to report, she, uh, he uh, will be very hesitant to do so. And uh, it is true that in Kyrgyzstan, 
victims of violence, they usually report to crisis centers rather than to police because uh, police uh, is still quite a male-dominated agency. And we don't know exactly how many policemen are there and uh, because uh, the informa- uh, this information is classified. So we don't actually follow this gender balance in, uh, in the law enforcement, uh, which, of course, affects the programming and interventions. If we know how many women work for police, we can actually uh, come up with better policies. And women tend to open up and to report better to women than uh, male policemen. This is a good point, too, because, of course, we, we remember the case of Azada Kanatekaba, uh, who yes, was kidnapped. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. I think uh, awareness raising did great. I mean, uh, her parents actually wanted the justice. They wanted to report, and they did the right thing. Uh, because uh, many programs, like civil society programs, that target parents, target uh, younger population uh, use and tell them that you have to, uh, you need to report the violence. And her parents actually did, uh, did great. They did report, and uh, system failed her, uh, both in cases of uh, Burulai and in case uh, of Aizada Kanadbekova. Uh, this is exactly the police. I don't. I. I will not say it's. It's a mistake. It's. Um, it's something else. I mean, it's lack of accountability. It's um, norms and stereotypes about women that uh, prevent them from responding in 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 proper way. Well, you know, and I want to mention too that um, for people in our audience who haven't heard this case, in Izada's case, when she was kidnapped, her mother did report to the police, and the policeman, uh, far from going out and looking for her, told the mother that she should be happy and that soon she'd be dancing at her daughter's wedding. Uh, it turned out that she was driven to the outside of town and killed by her abductor, who, who then killed himself. But um, so it's, uh, before I let you go and move back over to Melissa, you've told us that the cases, the number of reported cases have increased in the area. But can you tell us how many of these cases actually go to court? Because this is another shocking figure that comes out of Kyrgyzstan as well. Some of this is reported. In fact, it never goes to the end of the court case. It's dropped uh, either before the court case even starts or during the court case. Um, it just uh, I've heard figures of 90 percent of these cases uh, never reach court. Yeah, this this is true. I mean, uh, we take the cases that get reported. It's not the the full picture. Uh, it's it's like um, a, a small proportion of cases that gets reported. Less so they uh, they, they get processed, and even less so of uh, perpetrators get punished. Like uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, 2020 of 600 of, uh, cases of rape, uh, 53% were dropped and didn't reach uh, court decisions. So, I mean, it's a huge, it's a huge number. And a recent, I think, really infuriating case when uh, the process was long, as long as seven years and the perpetrators just got fined. I mean, they were fined guilty, but they just had to pay about 100, uh, well, yeah, 100,000 soms, and this is it. I mean, that's that's the punishment. And uh, I think uh, it's awful for the family and for the victim uh, to spend so uh, so much time and efforts and spend those years in court and then um, get this this result from the state, and which which is sending quite mixed uh, signals. 
uh, to victims and to perpetrators and civil society. I mean, there is there is no accountability. There is no punishment for the perpetrators. They feel enabled to to do so. Um, Melissa, uh, since you were just out there, and you you have to deal with government officials too. You know, Kyrgyzstan is kind of a unique country. It's strange that we're talking about this happening in Kyrgyzstan, considering it's the only country in Central Asia that ever had a woman president. For instance, you have many powerful political figures in Kyrgyzstan are in fact women. What is it about the legal system or the or the the procedures that the government is following following, which is is inadequate to this point? Um, you know, what what do you see out there that that's working as far as enforcing these kind of laws? Like Svetlana said, some the laws are there, they just don't seem to function correctly uh, or at all. Um, so, what what was your uh, observation of that? And and you know, if you can tell us a little about it, if you discussed this with with Kyrgyz officials, what we learned from what we heard from various interlocutors, including government officials, as well as civil society activists, and also women themselves, is that gender-based violence in Kyrgyzstan takes many forms, including domestic violence, economic violence, bride kidnapping, which we've heard about quite a bit, early marriage, as well as physical and psychological abuse, despite the fact that there's a legal framework on the protection from family violence and the 2019 decree on the order of protection and protection from family violence. So there are laws and policies, but uh, in spite of those, uh, violence in many different forms is actually quite prevalent. We learned about a number of initiatives and campaigns that are funded by the government, including one crisis center. But very often, private entities or donors are really the ones funding awareness raising and prevention campaigns and services for survivors of gender-based violence. Um, We also visited a shelter for victims of domestic violence in Bishkek. It's actually the only shelter which is fully funded by the government, which is quite concerning given that, at least according to one survey, only 11% of women feel safe at home. Um, We also uh, learned about capacity building programs on on law, gender sensitivity, investigation of gender-based violence for police officers, lawyers, and judges. We were informed about the development of practical guidance for police on effective investigation of gender crimes against women and minors. But of course, it's quite clear that implementation needs to be strengthened. We found that statistics on domestic violence are collected by different entities. So health authorities, internal affairs, and courts uh, which result in different, uh, different, different data, different kinds of data. So one thing that we did encourage the government to do was really establish a consolidated system for gathering disaggregated data on cases of domestic violence, since that is very pervasive. We also learned about the 2021 Criminal Code, which establishes a process for preliminary investigation whereby A victim does have the rights to legal representation, to petition, to claim damages, but only after the preliminary investigation check and an order on recognition of a victim. So, and and another thing that we noted is that the code really kind of encourages conciliation of parties in cases of violence. The Code of Criminal Offences contains three provisions on gender-based violence, and we were informed that the lack of legal literacy among victims often presents, uh, prevents them from seeking legal remedies. 
According to some of the information that we received, in 2021, there were 10,151 cases of domestic violence and 9,008 protection orders were issued. 110 of them were extended due to the severity of the cases, but in 90% of cases, the victims actually ended up returning to their aggressors due to the lack of economic independence as well as social pressure to preserve the unity of the family. So there are a number of social factors that also come into play. We, were, we are alarmed by reports of a significant increase in domestic violence, nearly 65% during the pandemic is what we were uh, told. There is a strong belief in Kyrgyzstan that it is acceptable for men to use violence against women if they fail to fulfill their supposed responsibilities or when their behavior transgresses social norms. And women are generally expected to obey their husbands and are not allowed to have their say in decision-making. So clearly there's also impunity for perpetrators and the limited enforcement of protection orders, the lack of victim support, and the barriers to women's and girls' access to justice in cases of domestic violence, including the re-victimization during long criminal proceedings is also something that we heard about. Under the Family Code uh, 2005, the minimum legal age of marriage is 18. There are exceptions as individuals can marry at 17 years with the permission of a local public authority. So although forced marriage is a crime in the criminal code, we heard that 13% of girls under the age of 18 are married. Now, women and girls living in rural areas are almost twice as likely to be victims of child and forced marriage. And this can be explained by poverty, parental control, harmful stereotypes, as well as increasing religious fundamentalism. We also found that sexual violence is quite prevalent. Of course, different forms of violence, such as domestic violence and sexual violence, are, are quite intertwined. And rape accounts for a significant proportion of sexual violence in Kyrgyzstan. The current laws do not include consent as part of the definition of rape. And sexual violence within marriage, or what we often refer to as marital rape, is not recognized as a crime. And due to gender stereotyping, it is kind of normalized. We also noted the low reporting rate of sexual violence by women to law enforcement agents. According to the testimonies that we heard, the low turnout is often due to many law enforcement agents being unsympathetic to victims of violence because of multiple factors, including gender stereotyping, victim blaming, the low number of women police officers, the risk of re-traumatization, and the lack of skilled female investigators and trained judges. Access to justice, well, there are many barriers experienced by women and girls. We noted the existence, I mean, we, we recognize that there is a legal framework for addressing human rights violations through the adoption of the National Action Plan of 2022 to 2024, with a focus on the elimination of discrimination and increasing access to justice. We were surprised, however, by the lack of awareness among women regarding their rights and the existence of certain enforcement mechanisms. So while there has been a, some, you know, there is a positive practice regarding training for prosecutors on, vict on domestic violence, uh, we heard quite a bit about that. We are concerned about the lack of effective measures 
that are available to women and girls to actually take legal action and the government's failure to remove institutional as well as to address social barriers. According to the information that we received, only 2.5% of reported cases of domestic violence uh, had been prosecuted. We also heard repeatedly about the low prevalence of the enforcement of protection orders. Um, and we also heard from several groups of marginalized women and girls, including older women, women with disabilities, women belonging to ethnic minority groups, migrant women, women living with HIV AIDS, women using drugs, as well as lesbian, bisexual, and transgender women, uh, they face multiple and intersecting forms of discrimination and a wide range of human rights violations. Thank you. Uh, we're, we've reached the midway point of the broadcast, so first I got to do our, our uh, t promo spot here. This is uh, the Medjulis podcast, a weekly program from Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, that looks at Paris, Central Asia. Um, today's topic is uh, increasing violence against women and girls in Kyrgyzstan, and I am joined today by Svetlana Zardanova, a uh, human rights and corruption researcher at Freedom for Eurasia and gender associate for the Central Asia Institute for Strategic Studies, and Melissa Upreti, chair of the UN Working Group on Discrimination Against Women and Girls, which is a special procedure of the High Human Rights Council. Um, okay, we were just talking, so we're talking about the, um, the violence and the fact that the law is kind of Although the law's there, a lot of times the women either don't understand it or don't, or or, or it's just simply not working for them. Now, a uh, former member of parliament, Natalia Nikitenko, um, said last week that that Kyrgyz people in Kyrgyzstan have lost faith in the police. Svetlana, this this question is for you. You had mentioned that the police are actually accused of uh, being the uh, Natalia Nikitenko, Nikitenko said that. Um, that the, the court system is also failing women in this. Uh, is is that the case? And, and I also wanted to bring up one thing first, if you could address too, that these policemen who are charged in this rape case, the, and I've read the, the charges against them, and their spe the specific wording is that they are charged with having um, uh, sexual relations with a minor under 14 years of old. It was a strange distinction for me, under 14 years old. Why? Why under 14? What, what, um, you know, we've heard that the age for marriage is 18. Why, why is, and usually a minor is someone under 16. If you, do you know why it's under 14? And then can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the feelings of some of these people in Kyrgyzstan that, you know, you mentioned that they, they don't even go, sometimes they don't go to the police at all because they don't think they'll get help. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sadly so. And uh, in our two recent research, that we conducted with my colleague from Uzbekistan, Nigina um, uh, Uralova. Uh, we talked to many experts in the fields, uh, representatives of crisis centers, etc. And their kind of reaction to this is that it's mostly empty words and promises from uh, from the state. And instead of addressing the issue, what they try to do is to silence the public discourse and basically sweep this issue under the rug. And Kyrgyz authorities, they continuously fail to protect women and act in line with, uh, with like local legislation and also international human rights standards. And what we lack is enforcement and what we lack is accountability. However, we, we do have kind of a sound legislation in place also uh, which 
which sets uh, uh, the um, the legal action against those uh, administrative uh, administrative uh, people and officers uh, when they uh, fail to to act in line but it never actually gets gets done and it's not a priority for the state i mean the the issue of violence against women is not a priority gender related issues is not a priority for the state and the inconsistencies uh, that we see is also with the national strategies and action pl uh, plans uh, that we have in Kyrgyzstan. For instance, the previous national strategy for achieving gender equality in the Congress uh, Republic uh, was adopted in 2012 and ended in uh, 2020. For, for two years now, we act without the national strategy for achieving uh, gender equality. So it actually shows how much a priority this is for the state. Uh, and uh, have ever uh, authorities reported that uh, the national strategy was developed already. Uh, so uh, this one is for 2021-2030, but it's not there. I mean, it's uh, it's still being updated or, sub or something. Uh, the official website of the Ministry of Justice also provides only the old version of the st uh, strategy. So there is a kind of patchwork of approach uh, uh, that what we see from the state and response infrastructure kind of violence uh, response infrastructure is absolutely inadequate in Kyrgyzstan. For like more than 3 million women that we have in country, we only have 17 crisis centers, uh, of which only eight also serve as um, uh, shelters for women. And women are very hesitant to report the cases to police because they get intimidated, they get uh, re-victimized, they actually get blamed uh, for the violence and and it's not only uh, on part of the um, of the police it's actually uh, quite a spread notion in in a society so the blame and responsibility for violence is placed on victims rather than abusers and it, it is by family members and health professionals and a recent case of kidnapping i think uh, of a 16 year old uh, that got reported actually very much against publicity and they didn't want to persecute the perpetrator. So they didn't want to go um, uh, after um, after the person who kidnapped, uh, who kidnapped their daughter to avoid public uh, scrutiny. And it's also part of the deal that women uh, don't want to get this attention because they are blamed for uh, for the violence by their family members, by health professionals, and of course also by police and judges. And one of the lawyers that we spoke with during our research, she said that even female judges are um, quite... Mm, hostile towards victims of violence, and sometimes even more hostile than male judges. Uh, and this is not because of the gender, of course, but because we have so few women in such structures. So they are forced to act within uh, the general attitude towards women and towards gender, uh, to, uh, towards violence women. So we need... Uh, to ensure better gender sensitivity among the law enforcement agencies and, of course, also first respondents who work with gender-based gender-based violence victims. And uh, here, I mean, of course, police and healthcare um, professionals uh, and uh, crisis centers professionals. Uh, and 
the the problem is also with um, as I said, lack of political will, lack of finances for for that. And as Melissa already said, uh, there is just one um, crisis center fully supported by the state and financed by the state. And it was not in place until 2021. And it's also can be a part of what COVID-19 pandemic did. It attracted the attention and uh, to the uh, to the issue and kind of pushed the state to do to move things forward. Uh, also, there is a widespread feeling among uh, experts working in the field and among the professionals that what state does in the field of gender-related uh, issues and specifically in the field of violence against women is uh, kind of pushed from uh, civil society and international organizations. And uh, otherwise, they are not interested in the issue. And it's it's only uh, promises and like empty words that we are here, we will support. Yeah. Now, there's I understand the societal pressure. Uh, the crime has been committed. There's been violence against a woman. Um, she files the complaint uh, and then and then has second thoughts, right? Which happens a lot of times where she's the pressure from her family, her husband's family or, or uh, whoever her abuser was, uh, their family, she decides to drop the case, but a crime has been committed. The state is still legally bound to pursue this this case, especially a case of violence. We remember the woman a couple of years ago who had the, her husband put the tires around her and poured cold water on her, you know, and, and videotaped it too. And, and she was willing to forgive him, but the state should prosecute this because it's a crime. How often does that happen, and and why doesn't it happen all the time, Svetlana? Yeah, as uh, I think Melissa mentioned, is uh, much of the um, well, uh, women are under pressure. They uh, they get blamed. They get pressured uh, to kind of drop the charges, and in many cases they uh, they do. Also, there is uh, in many cases a reconciliation of parties. Uh, and I think that's uh, a way of perpetrators to avoid the punishment. And uh, but 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 a crime has still been committed. Isn't the state obligated to do something about this? Now, whether the the victim is willing to forgive them or not, the fact is uh, that a crime was committed, and it should be the job of the prosecutor to go ahead with this case if there's sufficient evidence, even if the the victim is not willing to to testify against their abuser. Isn't that, isn't that correct? It is, but it it is also depends on specific uh, articles in the uh, in the codes. For instance, in many cases, when women are attacked uh, on the streets, uh, perpetrators are only charged with uh, like minor offenses, like uh, petty hooliganism, uh, which is kind of sounds absurd because this is attack on a person. It's uh, it's not against the the public order or something. I mean, uh, the perpetrator should be accused of a much uh, stronger um, kind of uh, crime, but it, it, it uh, we don't see it. And of course, you're right. The state should uh, proceed with um, uh, with the process, but in many cases they just don't. And it's 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 a good uh, question to address to the uh, to authorities. Yeah, in in recent cases, what we see is that uh, they only react. 
uh, whenever there is a huge public uh, attention to to cases, just like in this recent one with uh, a 13 year old. And uh, you uh, you mentioned before that the wording is uh, uh, is strange, and you mentioned this 14 uh, under 14 years old. But what is strange is also that they mention the sexual intercourse with the minor, not the rape, uh, which also changes uh, the terms. So this is a good point. Um, and Melissa, I got you know essentially the same question to you. When when the prosecutor refuses to per, to pursue cases of, of violence against women or girls, you know even, even though you would think that they would have the right to do so, even if the victim is is not willing to testify. I mean, if I went and shot somebody on the street and they said I'm sorry, uh, and they said that's okay, he was mad or something like that. The fact is, I committed a crime and I'm a threat to society. At that point, if I'm willing to do something like this, then there, there certainly should be a message given that this is in, in, unacceptable behavior. It's improper. It leads to other problems. Why? Uh, why does the, in your experience talking with some of the, with the officials in Kyrgyzstan or or people in uh, you know the people in Kyrgyzstan? Why are the authorities reluctant to pursue a case even when there's clear evidence that there's been a crime committed? Um, part of the problem is that. Many law enforcement agents are unsympathetic to victims of violence, and this is due to a range of factors, including pervasive gender stereotyping, which shapes their own attitudes and beliefs, and also their perception of their role as law enforcement agents and how far they can and should go. There's also a tendency of victim blaming, which is pervasive. Law enforcement agents also often tend to blame the victims. There is also a low number of women police officers, so there is really a shortage of individuals within the system who who would be more who would perhaps be more likely to be responsive to such cases. And there's also the risk of re-traumatization, which women and girls are very concerned about, which is also why they often do not um, approach the legal system. I mean, there's also the lack of skilled female investigators as well as trained judges. So across the system, across the board, um, we find these deficiencies. I mean, this is exactly why, as um, you know, during our visit and at the end of our visit in our preliminary findings, we have recommended, first of all, a significant increase in female police officers. Uh, we've also recommended the establishment of a dedicated police unit with specially trained police officers and investigators, which would focus on the investigation of gender-related crimes and that they would refer these cases to a court where the judges have also been trained on gender-based violence, I mean, to handle cases of gender-based violence. This unit would have a direct reporting line to the Ministry of Internal Affairs. And, you know, these types of measures are necessary to really ensure that these cases, the investigation and prosecution of these crimes is prioritized within the system itself. Um, just real quickly, what was the reaction of Kyrgyz authorities to your, your suggestions? Uh, did they, they seem like they were going to act on that? So we have presented all of our preliminary findings and recommendations to the authorities, um, and there wasn't direct opposition. Uh, these country visits are conducted in a spirit of cooperation. We conduct these missions on the invitation of the government, and the idea is that they will listen to our observations and that they will take steps 
to actually implement our recommendations. So this is an ongoing process. Uh, what I've shared today uh, are the preliminary findings. We will submit a final report to the government early next year. And uh, we've let the government know that we are also hoping to receive information about any progress that they make uh, in some of the directions that we have uh, made recommendations. So we do expect the government to take certain steps to act in good faith and to implement these measures. So we'll have to see. Okay, and now for our, our conclusion of the show here, and we'll start with Melissa and then go back to Svetlana. If for for women in Kyrgyzstan or girls who find who find themselves the unfortunate victims of these kind of problems, um, understanding that the authorities might not be the best might might be the the best uh, place to turn to, and sometimes even even people in their community might not be the best. Who is what organizations? Which people in Kyrgyzstan are working to help women and girls who find themselves in this situation? Can you name some of them, and then uh, and hopefully people in our audience will uh, be able to help them out or give them extra publicity. Yes, Svetlana, I think you'll have to take that question. I think you probably are a lot more familiar with which organizations. Yeah, please, Svetlana, could you tell us? In many cases, this, uh, these are uh, civil society organizations, uh, as I said, 17 uh, crisis centers, and they are mostly uh, working on um, donations uh, and uh, on pro uh, like project-based uh, finance from international organizations, and they can be uh, supported by, I think, well, from time to time, they do fundraising campaigns, and these organizations definitely should be um, supported. There is a group of organizations working in gender on gender-based issues, uh, which is called Unite, and it like a co coalition of um, about 300 organizations uh, and individuals uh, that work on on the issue. Uh, if we uh, want to talk about like the exact names of crisis centers, uh, one of the um, like prominent, uh, famous uh, one uh, working in, in 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 Bishkek is Sizim. There is also one uh, called A Friend, uh, which works in Osh. Uh, and I have like a list of them. I think uh, maybe I will share uh, with you a list of the crisis centers uh, that are operating in um, in Kyrgyzstan that that you maybe uh, can share with uh, with listeners. Okay, excellent, excellent. Thank you very, very much. And Melissa, you wanted to add something? Yes, just one point, please, on this. I would like to emphasize that civil society organizations, women's rights organizations, and crisis centers have been playing a crucial role in responding to the demand for support services. But at the end of the day, it's absolutely crucial to hold the government accountable to its responsibilities and to find ways to push for the necessary legal and policy reform, uh, to build on the foundation that already exists, and to demand resources, the investment of resources in the kinds of services that are needed to support victims, and also um, investment in the measures that are needed to prevent violence. And that extends to really addressing the pervasive gender stereotyping, as well as the rise in religious fundamentalism, which is a huge concern for women themselves. There are so many women who, during our visit, expressed concern about how the rise in religious fundamentalism is reinforcing discrimination. And so that needs to be tackled. So I would also really recommend that organizations take the recommendations that we issue 
that we publish in our report at the end of this process and use these recommendations along with other evidence from research uh, as well as other uh, kinds of legal arguments to really demand accountability. This is about demanding accountability and legal reform to make sure that victims and survivors get the services that they need. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, and unfortunately, our, we're run, we are out of time now, but I do want to thank you both. Thanks to our guests, Melissa Upreti, chair of the UN Working Group on Discrimination Against Women and Girls, uh, and Svetlana Zardanova, a human rights and corruption researcher at Freedom for Eurasia and gender associate for Central Asia Institute for Strategic Studies. I appreciate you taking the time to be on our program and, and informing our audience about what's happening out there. A big thank you to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjlis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjlis podcast or the Central Asia and Focus newsletter by visiting RF. RFARL's website at rfarl.org. Thanks, and we'll be back next week.